morning and turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, and we're going to look this morning at the parable, parable of the rich man and Lazarus. I am preaching this morning on a very sobering subject. It is the subject of what the Bible says about hell. It is not a popular subject. It is not a subject for the faint of heart. Almost every false religion today denies the reality of an eternal hell. Yet Jesus said more about hell than any other person in the New Testament. In fact, he said much more about hell than he did about heaven. There are three common views about what happens to a person when they die from this life and go somewhere. Right? Universalism is the first one which teaches that in the end, everyone will be saved. Universalists believe that because God is love, He cannot eternally condemn anyone in the end. They believe hell will not exist. Those are the universalists. There's also a second group called the annihilationists. Under this scheme... God takes believers to heaven, but puts the rest out of existence. They experience no conscious punishment, they believe, or suffering. They are judged by having their existence terminated. That's their judgment. According to this view, therefore, there is no such place as hell or anything like it. Many cults and apostate denominations have embraced this doctrine. There's one that's related to that called also, the third one, conditional immortality. This, is, this doctrine says that the human soul is transient until immortality is bestowed upon it. Since eternal life is given only to believers, all others simply passed into oblivion after the final judgment, whatever that means. All these views and anything that other views that people have, which there are others, all contradict Scripture. They are all in error. And the damning thing about them is they give a false sense of security to those who hold to them. In your Bibles, in Luke chapter 16... Let us look at this passage with great sobriety this morning and glean at least six facts that Jesus reveals about hell. But I want you to notice in verse number 19, the setting of Luke chapter 16. It says, Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus, who was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Verse 22, Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried, and notice in verse number 23, in Hades, he lifted up his eyes. Now this is Jesus giving this parable. And he is saying here that Abraham, or excuse me, Lazarus died and went into the bosom of Abraham to shed light on that particular expression, Abraham's bosom. We 
really have a parallel in John chapter 13. Don't turn there, but it's when the Apostle John's description is given of the final Passover celebration in the upper room where it says they were leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of His disciples whom Jesus loved. This scene is a lower table where guests had reclined and the disciples, who was John himself, was in a position so his head was near Jesus' chest. They positioned themselves that way so that they can converse and eat, have one hand free to eat. So when Jesus says that Lazarus was carried to bosom, Abraham's bosom, he indicates that this former beggar was reclining at a banquet table in, celebra- in a, really a celebration of joy next to Abraham, the patriarch of all faithful. In other words, Lazarus was in a position of very high honor, which he did not have that position in this world. So just imagine the, the, the confusion or the dismay it caused the Pharisees when Jesus portrayed an ordinary beggar reclining at the table next to the greatest leader of all the faithful. See, they were really taken back by this. But it's also mentioned in the Word of God, in Matthew, when the disciples were hearing teaching from Jesus again in Matthew 19, 23, it says, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the reason why is because a rich man tends to tend, tends to trust his riches for everything. And then it says, and again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, then who, who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. But in this parable we have a beggar. In his, this life he was viewed by the Pharisees as someone who was unclean, unapproachable to God, and even despised by God. But Lazarus, it seems here in this passage, that he was in the bosom of Abraham, also synonymous with heaven, being with God and the faithful in heaven. And of course, the rich man, in verse number 23, is in Hades. That, of course, is a place the Bible calls, a place where all the, it's really literally called the place of the dead, the abode of the dead. Those who go there, go there actually not necessarily consciously dead, but actually consciously alive. In fact, in spite of what people imagine hell to be, One of the first facts we see in verse 23 and verse 28, the first thing about hell is that hell is a definite place. Notice in verse number 23, it says, in Hades, a place. And then look at verse number 28 of Luke 16, the last part of the verse. So they will not also come to this place of torment. That the Bible is is describing the place that we call hell, Hades, Sheol, as a real place, just as this building is real, just as you are real, that it is a real place. And it is a real place people go who are unbelieving after they die. They go there. Remember, it is appointed once for man to die, and then what? Hebrews, the judgment. Right? So they are awaiting in hell for the final great judgment of God. There, it's a holding place before the lake of fire, before the eternal lake of fire. It's a place where God holds people after they die 
in torment before they are completely judged by God. Now, Jesus is using a view that was probably held by the rabbis. It was a rabbinical idea that there was a two parts of what they thought was Hades. One part, it kept the souls of the righteous. Another part, kept the souls of the wicked. But really, places that you look in Scripture, that all those who die in Christ go immediately to God's presence. Not to be held anywhere. And so, nonetheless, he's using this as something that was, I really... It was not true to the fact of what Jesus was, uh, what they thought a place was where someone went who, who died. But here, Jesus is saying, listen, this place is a real place. And all those who are unbelieving will go there. A second thing about hell is hell is a place of torment. If you notice in verse 24, it says, And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus, so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For, notice what it says, I am in agony in this flame. And then in verse 24, the last part of the verse, it says, So that they will not also come to this place of torment. That Jesus is telling us and teaching us that Hell is a place of agony, and it's a place of torment, meaning that the people who are there know they're being torment and know that they are in agony. In fact, Jesus himself and other places in the New Testament describes hell in very vivid terms, where he describes it as a place where the worm, their worm does not die in The fire is not quenched. In Matthew, he also calls hell outer darkness, where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He warned unbelievers of the judgment to come and that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There, when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being cast out and kept out of it in Luke. Chapter 13, he described hell as unquenchable fire, as a furnace of fire. He warned those who heard him preach, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter a life crippled than having your two hands and go into hell, than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire in Mark 9, 43. See, so hell is not only real, but it is a place of torment. It is a place of conscious agony and conscious torment of all those who go there. A third thing about hell is found in verse number 25. It is a place where memories will haunt every inhabitant. It says in verse 25, But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received good things. And likewise, Lazarus, bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. That means that this person was able to remember his good life and now realizes that he was permanently separated from anything and anyone that was good. So, his memory has haunted him. The ability to know what was going on was still intact in this place of torment. This is after death, and Jesus is describing it. Another thing about hell, a fourth thing, is it found in verse 26. Hell is an impenetrable place. You're locked out of it, and once you're in it, you're locked into it. In verse 26, It says you're locked out until physical death of all unbelievers. It says besides all this between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over 
from there to us. Jesus using their own understanding of what they thought hell would be as a place that you, once you got into, you couldn't get out of. And that, of course, is what he's saying here. That is, some, once you get there by unbelief, that you cannot get out of there. And no one else could get in there from the outside, and no one in could get out from there. So that is a place where people are kept until God lets them out for judgment, and then he casts them in to the lake of fire. And then another thing in Luke 16, 26, hell is an everlasting place. It says this, that they're locked in forever. You will not be able, in the last part of verse 26, and none may cross over from here to us. That it is a place that is everlasting, that once a person dies in unbelief, without Christ, all that they have to wait for is judgment. Revelation 14.11 describes hell's torments as unremitting and eternal. The smoke and their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. And then Revelation 20, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And Matthew says, these unbelievers will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. See, these verses employ a Greek word that means perpetual, ongoing, eternal, forever. That means there is no end in sight. To describe both the bliss, this word eternal is used, the bliss of heaven and also the punishment of hell. That people just do not want to think that there is such a place as hell. Because it is not good to think about hell, they say. It is not politically correct to talk about a place of torment. It is not mentally healthy to talk or think about a place where people will go after they die without Christ and be tormented and then judged by God and then sent into an eternal torment, never to escape, never to have release Heaven is forever, and so is hell forever, the Bible teaches. The people on earth are frequently diverted from thinking about weightier, to think about such weighty matters as hell. They're diverted by cheerful, the cheerful light of the sun every day and by the change of the seasons. And there are a thousand and one things that can divert the tension of people away from the thought of hell. But the inhabitants of hell have nothing to divert them from their torments. Even for one moment, there is no sun, there is no moon, there is no change of the seasons, or there are no companions. There is no business. The only one uninterrupted scene of horror, which they must give attention to all the time, all day long. They have no interval of daydreaming. They are all eye, one said, and all ear and all sense. Every instance of their duration, it is said that their whole frame is trembling alive and agonizing in every single pore of their body. Hell is a real place. Are, are, are you concerned about that? Are you concerned that you don't go there? Are you concerned that your neighbors don't go there? That your children don't go there? Is there any concern today that we have, that people will not end up there that are close to us. And that we ourselves will not end up there. Because remember, when the rich man died, he wasn't planning on going to hell. In fact, according to their teaching, he, was, he thought he was, already had the kingdom. 
He thought he was already going there, and he ended up in hell. He thought he was going to heaven, and he ends up in hell. Could this be the reality of many people? That people are slipping off into eternity without knowing Christ. See, of this duration that they are in, there is no end. What a thought this is. Nothing but eternity is the term of their torment. And who can count the drops of rain? Or who can count the sand on the seashore? Or who can count the days of eternity? No one can. Every suffering that we have on this earth is softened because there's always hope. But hope never comes to those in hell. See, we live without thinking about weightier matters of life. People are planning for retirement feverishly making sure they have a strong portfolio. But they give little thought to whether they will slip off into a lost eternity and fall into this torment. Because they have tricked themselves that it will not happen to them. It may happen to others, but not them. And they live in that. But I want to show you something in Luke chapter 16, verse 27 and 28. There's a last thing about hell. Hell is a place of deep concern of those who go there. All of a sudden, they start deep thinking profoundly. Not tri- they weren't concerned about trivial, trivial matters anymore in hell. They're concerned about profound matters. Matters of eternity. Matters of life and death. And look what it says Hell is a place of deep concern. Verse 27, a concern for someone to convince his family of the truth of God's word. Verse 27, and he said, I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. That he knew that someone could go to his father's house and tell them that the place that I'm in is real. That they can escape it. He's concerned and convinced that his family needs to know this now that he's in hell. A second thing is in verse 28. A concern for someone to be sent to warn his family. In verse 28 it says, For I have five brothers in order that they may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. You see how the shifting in hell has changed in the thought of the people who are there. They they now realize there is a message to rescue them. There is a warning. The building is burning down. Get out of it. If you don't, you'll die. See, there's a warning. And there's a deep concern here in this passage of Scripture that, listen, heed the message that the Word of God is true. And if you don't believe what God says about it, then you may be the one who slips off and death takes you and you go off into a lost eternity. Because there's a third, under number six, a third concern he has in verse 30. A concern for someone to persuade his family of the need of repentance. Look what it says in verse 30. But he says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to tell them from the dead, they will repent. See, the concern is they repent of their sin and they turn to God. They repent of their own way and their own unbelief and they turn and believe in God. But he says something very Unusual here in verse number 30. But I must say this, that his concern is too late. The answer that is given to him 
is that you must respond to the Word of God while you are on earth. Scripture is the only thing that can overcome unbelief. Do you understand that? God's Word is the only thing that is the power of God unto salvation. It is by the Word of God that faith comes in which you believe in Christ. It is the Word of God that has come to you that will enlighten and give you understanding and open your eyes to see that you are heading to a place of hell which is God's judgment and God's wrath for all eternity because of your unbelief. It is God's Word that He has left us. And the guy, though, had a little bit of a misunderstanding in hell. He said, no, Father Abraham, if someone rises from the dead and goes to my family, that miracle will surely get their attention, and they will repent. Isn't that what people wait for? Hey, I need to see some miracles. I need to see some miraculous things if I'm going to believe anything. Well, miracles were never given to get people to believe. They were given to authenticate the power of the one performing the miracle and the word he spoke. Not to bring anyone to a belief or a salvation. And so, in the word of God, it's saying, listen, you must respond to the word of God while you have blood running through your veins while you are sound of mind, while you are able to hear and understand the message, respond to it. Because the miraculous resurrection, with one proclaiming as persuasive warnings, will not convince your family or persuade your family to escape such torment. Just as verse 29 and 31 says, look what it says. Here's his answer to that. But Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophet. Let them hear him. Let them hear them. Meaning what? I.e., the Old Testament. That's what they had written then, right? They said, listen, if anything's going to rescue you from this place of agony and from this place of torment, it's going to be what God has already wrote down and what was spoken to you by Moses and the prophets. And that's a way of saying all of the Old Testament. Brethren, we have Old Testament and New Testament. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. It's the only way it comes. You can witness miracles your whole life. I can stack up evidence. Remember, salvation is is not a matter of knowledge. It's a matter of conviction of sin and unbelief that comes to you by the preaching of the Word of God and the Spirit of God convicting you that you're in a terrible condition before God and you better repent while you have time. Verse number 31 says this, But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the grave. They will not be persuaded by the most powerful miracle. And believe me, there's no better, more powerful miracle than someone rising from the grave. Right? They will not believe him. Why? Because that's not God's ordained method to save people. That's not God's ordained method to open their eyes. Scripture is the only thing that will overcome unbelief. It is sufficient to get your attention. If you are a believer this morning, you know what got your attention? The Word of God. That's what convicted you. The Spirit of God used the Word of God to bring you to the place where you began to feel the sense of His righteous judgment. You began to see that you're a sinner under God's judgment and you wanted to be rescued from it. So see, it's the sufficiency of Scripture that is the only thing that can bring faith to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing. I would like to clear up some misconceptions people have about this place called hell. 
Hell is not a place that you'll meet your buddies and have a party drinking your favorite alcoholic beverage while smoking and carousing. It will not be a place like this. You will have no fun in hell. It will continually be a place of constant, conscious, mental, emotional, and physical torment. Also, hell is not a place where Satan and his demons are in charge. God's in charge in hell. And they are under His punishment, as well as all the unbelievers, just like all the unconverted wicked humans that are there. This is what it says in Matthew. Then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So hell has been a place that God prepared for the devils and his angels and all those who follow the devils and his angels, and that's all those people who are in unbelief. See, God is under no obligation whatsoever to keep any natural person from eternal destruction for one moment. In fact, the natural man could do nothing to preserve his own life and escape hell. Especially while they continually reject Christ, which is their only means of escape. Almost every person who has ever heard of hell somehow deceives themselves that they will escape it. They convince themselves by their own plans and by their own schemes that they have no intention of going to a place of torment. Does anybody you know have that intention? No. But they will go there without Christ. Remember, those who remain unconverted will go there. Death will take them by surprise. Death always takes people by surprise. He never sends you a little note. Saying, by the way, why don't you get ready for this, because I'm coming. Death will always outsmart you. It will outsmart the wisest person, the wisest planner. It will outsmart you. And most people who live now in ease, with no visible danger in sight of anything like hell, think at least for now they are safe and do not consider that they are always living on the brink of eternity. As Jonathan Edwards says, they do not see that they travel over a rotten bridge and are unaware that underneath them the fiery pit of hell rages with its mouth open wide, waiting to take them and swallow them up. And don't think, young person, no matter how you, young you are here this morning, don't think, young person, that you have plenty of time to consider the weightier matters. And you say to yourself, I want to have fun. I want to experience life. I want to pursue my dreams. I want to break free and fly on my own. I don't need at this moment to ponder, ponder such disturbing thoughts. I have the Oscars tonight to look forward to. I'm excited about who will be the next American Idol. My friends, such trivial, meaningless stuff people are concerned about today. And the weightier matters of life in your soul and relationship with God are just pushed aside. Or, we don't talk about that around here, brother, sister. Or if you talk about it, you may get pulled into court. The young person may say, I want to think about my future plans. I want to think about where I'm going to school. That's what I'm thinking about now. I want to think about who I'm going to marry. That's what I'm thinking about. But you know what? In any of those places in which you think about those things, death can come. And will take you by surprise. Both young and old die alike. Both righteous and unrighteous die. 
But a wise man in the Old Testament once said to his youthful students, King Solomon, this is what he said to them, Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of your young manhood, and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. That's what he tells them. It's good to do that. But while you're doing that, don't let your mind shift off to some frivolity and trivial thing that means nothing. While you're thinking about what you're planning, he said this to them, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things you're planning. Well, that changes some things if I think like that. I will not do the things that I may be planning to do that I know God would not be pleased with, that I know is sinful and unrighteous and wicked and ungodly and could send me to hell, and you may even think I deserve hell. And then he says this, So remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. He's telling young, young people, this is the way you ought to think while you're young. Think about death while you're young. Ecclesiastes even says, what's better or best? Or what's good and best? Is it good to be married and rejoice? Or is it better to rejoice at a funeral? Or mourn at a funeral. What's better? To rejoice at a wedding or to mourn at a funeral? His answer in Ecclesiastes is this. It's better to mourn at a funeral. That's the best thing. Why? Because at a funeral, it causes you to face the reality of life and your destiny. Your destiny and my destiny. We are all heading for the grave. Some may come sooner than others. But that's where we're all heading. And my friend, the only thing keeping you out of hell this very moment is the hand of an almighty God. So you think it is your good health or it is your youth or the wise way you preserve your life by eating wholesome foods and by taking your vitamins and exercising and taking good care of yourself are the ways that you escape from death. My friend, these things are nothing. Jonathan Edwards also said this, if God withdrew his hand, these things would no more keep you from falling into hell than thin air holds up a person suspended in it. The reason why, oh, unconverted sinner, you did not drop into hell last night or were not allowed to wake up this morning or were allowed to wake up this morning and breathe another breath of air was because your time did not yet come. That God in his long suffering is giving you time for repentance. And I tell you what, if anybody thinks hell's a laughing matter, They need to consider this passage. They need to consider the concerns of the brother, of the man in hell for his brothers and for his family. When it's too late that they have the word of God. And if you don't respond to the word of God, then then you cannot be saved. See, all those who have never been born again and made new creatures, those who have, been, have, not, those who have not been raised from the dead and from their sin and, and made alive unto God, they are all in deep trouble with God. His wrath abides on you in your unconverted condition. Your sins are an affront to God. 
your own wickedness weighs you down and is dragging you this very moment into the pit of hell. And no one can stand before the fierce wrath of God. That's why in Luke it says, I warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. He says, I warned you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, fear you him. Fear God who has that power. And I must tell all those who are unconverted that God is angry with them and the sword of his wrath already hangs over their guilty heads. And unless they repent of their sins and trust in Christ to save them, they will forever experience the wrath of eternal punishment. Hebrews tells us that if you reject what God has given and and you go on sinning and say, I don't believe in any of it, well, it's going to be a fearful thing to hand fall into the hands of a living God because it's all true you know and people can make fun of it they could laugh but their day's coming and when they get to a place like hell it will be no laughing matter for them neither for God and God will not rescue them from his wrath because he's just doling out his righteous judgment on them and they will they will receive no more justice than they deserve that's why there probably will be degrees of hell as the bible teaches god will mete out his justice justice according to what they have done and so my friend don't think because you made a profession of faith or had some religious experience or have been faithful to practice some religion or even regular at church don't think hell will not swallow you up into eternal destruction if you do not have a real relationship with Jesus Christ by faith, trusting Him with all your heart. See, we need to be born again, don't we? That's what we need. We need to be born again, for you cannot be a Christian without being born again. And being born again is what defines a Christian. That's why the Gospel of John tells us, truly I say to you, that unless one is born again, he cannot what? See the kingdom of God. He can't see it. He doesn't have it. It's not his possession. Unless you're born again. You were born once. If you're born once, you'll die once. No, if you're born once, you'll die twice. You'll die a physical death and eternal death. If you're born twice, you'll die once, physically only, because you'll have eternal life. But if a sinner doesn't see that they are lost under God's wrath and in trouble with God, they will see very little need of the cross, Jesus Christ. They will see very little need to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They will settle on a righteousness of their own, They will settle on a philosophy of their own and they will think themselves not so bad that God should be angry with them enough to send them to a place like hell. They've misunderstood. It's hard to preach a message like this. But it must be preached. Because Jesus Christ is God's only remedy. He's our only means of escape. And that Jesus Christ on the cross took upon him the eternal torment for all who believe in him. He suffered in our place. He paid the justice of God so we can be set free. So we can have eternal life. See, the justice of God always has to be meted out. It always has to be satisfied. So Jesus has to be the substitute of those who believe in him because he's the only one who took their wrath. He's the only one who could pay 
their price. He's the only one who could make them right with God. He's the only one who could rescue them from hell. So this is what you must do. And this is the amazing thing in Scripture. Now we live in a time of mercy. Right now is the time of grace. This instant is the time that you need to be thinking about yourself and where you're heading. Right now is the time you need to be calling out, crying out to God to save you if you're not saved and not sure about your condition and position before God. And so you need to come to Him for mercy. God in His mercy needs to cause you to be born again if you are going to be born again. And what does He tell us to do? He tells us to repent of our sins. He tells us that repent and believe the gospel. The man in hell was concerned that his family repent. Well, I'm concerned that you repent and believe in Christ. No matter who you are, repentance is a conscious recognition that you are a sinner and you are turning to a Savior to forgive you of your sins and to make you right with God and reconcile you as an enemy back to God or to God now. And you're to believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 16, 31. And true faith is always accompanied by repentance from sin. Always accompanied by conviction of sin. Repentance includes agreeing with God that you are sinful and want to confess your sins and your sin of unbelief and make a conscious choice to turn from them and pursue Christ in loving obedience for the rest of your life. See, true saving faith always responds with obedience. So now is the time of mercy. Now is the, t- you may ask, you know, I, I, you know why I preached this message this morning? Not because I'm between books. But I was reading an article about how churches don't preach on hell anymore. And I says, well, I'm not, I don't want to be that church. I says, I have, to, I have to tell and warn our people. I have to let them know what the Bible says about it, that this is no fantasy story here. This is, this is real stuff. And it is all right for us to not only think about it, but for the young people to think about it and consider their Eternity, in light of these truths. See, follow Christ. Receive the free gift of eternal life offered in Jesus Christ. So saving faith means, and I've said this often, we we come to an end of ourselves. Saving faith means there's no self-salvation. There's there's no no more self-reliance. I have no self-righteousness. I have nothing to show God that he would somehow take me to heaven without Christ. But I'm to trust absolutely in Christ for the forgiveness of sins and for eternal salvation. So now is the time. You always stand on the edge of eternity, never knowing how much time you have left. So you need to trust Christ now. One thing about this man in hell and anybody who's gone to hell without, when they have rejected the word of God, is they're going to think about what they rejected for all eternity. They're going to remember a message like this for all eternity. So you need Christ now. Because it's the only thing that will deliver you. But I think it says something else in closing. To those who are saved to those who have believed that the word of God and the teaching on hell should enhance our view of sin, helping us to learn to hate sin as God hates it, as the reality of hell violates and offends us, so sin violates and offends God. It should teach us and awaken us to God's wrath. God is a God of love, but He is a God of wrath. He's given us a message. We are to believe it. 
We are to respond to it. We are to follow Him. And I believe it should also teach us and encourage us to witness and move us with compassion that the knowledge of hell coupled with compassion should move Christians to warn sinners of the dreadful consequences of facing the wrath of God in the lake of fire and tell them how to avoid it. This is how to avoid hell. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. That's how you avoid it. And let's thank our Lord for allowing us to hear the words of hope and salvation while we're on this earth. Thank Him for that. Do you realize how important it is? It's the greatest treasure you could have. You're rich because of it. And that His divine mercy has rescued and will rescue from eternal, eternal perdition all those who trust in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life. That's what it'll do. So I pray this morning that as you consider this passage, you consider your own life, that you will be someone who death does not take you by surprise or that you are unprepared for it. Death itself may take you by surprise, but you're prepared for it. That means this, that if you were to die today, you know where you're going to go, right? And you know you're going to go there not based on anything you've done or anything you could be or anything you could have offered, but you're going there based on your faith in Jesus Christ, your Lord and your Savior. That's why you end up there. Amen? That's why you end up there. So my friends, I have to warn you that hell is a real place and that God is not fooling around in this matter of his judgment. Let's pray. Lord, this morning I do ask you, in the weight of this subject, you know everyone who's here today, Lord. You, in, you know exactly where they stand with you. I pray, Lord Jesus, that any who do not know you as Lord and Savior would come today and believe in you. I pray also, Lord, that those who do know you would take evangelism seriously, that you would prepare them to share Christ with all they can and point them away from this place to the only one who could save them and rescue them. Only you, Lord, can do this. And I just pray, Lord, that you've given us the truth. You've given us Moses and the prophets, and you've given us the New Testament, the apostles, and you've given us yourself as a revelation, Lord. Please, I pray that people would not reject that, but they would believe it, and they would live according to it, and they would rejoice in it. And so, Lord, today, please bless us, Lord, this afternoon. Help us to think about these things as we go our way. And I pray, Lord, that we would think more soberly about our life. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we close in our next song.